Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm a compliance evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 121 of This Week in FCPA for the week ending September 17, 2018, the Go Blue edition. First, a word from our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across all industries. With its knowledge of effective compliance and ethics programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitors is respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 600 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance program, visit our sponsors, Affiliated Monitors, at their website, www.affiliatedmonitors.com. This week, Jay and I have a full spectrum of uh, items to bring to your attention. We start with why due diligence is a nice to have, excuse me, not a nice to have, but mandatory. We take a look at Brett Kavanaugh and compliance. We consider the <clears throat> whether a law firm, when it admits in its internal investigation was designed to be a whitewash, is worth anything. We discuss Mark Cuban's $10 million donation after having been found to have run one of the biggest toxic corporate cultures around sexual abuse and harassment over the past 15 years and discusses if this is enough. We take a look at a, a rare big oil corruption trial in the United Kingdom. We consider the KPMG study, which finds slow adoption of tech and compliance. We'll take a look at Matthew Stevenson's continued consideration of the Hoskins decision and the SEC's uh, commentary they've received in response to their proposal to limit whistleblower awards. I know you will enjoy this week's edition. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist, back for another episode of This Week in FCPA, episode 121 for the week ending, September 17th, 2018, the Go Blue edition. As always, I'm joined by Mr. Monitors, Jay Rosen, who is on location at Century City in Los Angeles. Jay, welcome. Thanks, Tom. Uh, can you explain for anybody who I guess is not from planet Earth, why are we calling this the Go Blue Edition? It is. Uh, myself and Mrs. Compliance Evangelist have trekked to Ann Arbor, Michigan to attend my law school reunion, watch the Michigan Wolverines trounce Nebraska, and hopefully at least tomorrow perhaps enjoy some cool autumn weather. Uh, On the last one, it is very hot, muggy, and humid today, so uh, hopefully that will uh, change overnight. Cool. And uh, what does that place see? Is it 104,000 there? Uh, That's why it's called the Big House. (laughs) Exactly. Well, the the Big House is a place where maybe some of the people who made our uh, This Weekend FCPA might end up. Uh, What do we got number one on the hit list? So um, if you don't know who he is, Scott Schaefer is with Kreller, and he's a managing director. And uh, the only complaint I have about his social media postings is they are not enough of them because he writes some great stuff. And he had another blog post this week on the FCPA blog where he looked at uh, some of the significant FCPA enforcement actions in 2018 to date. And uh, looked at it from the perspective of uh, due diligence on third parties. 
The title of his piece is Due Diligence is Not a Nice to Have, It's a Must. And he really shows in the Panasonic Avionics and the Societe Generale, Leg Mason cases, how the companies completely failed around performing due diligence on the third-party sales agents. So it's a reminder that not only the third parties continue to be the highest risk under the FCPA, but you have to manage that risk. And a, a initial and important part of that is due diligence. Scott makes clear that due diligence is only a part of the process, but if you don't have due diligence, you're going to set yourself up for a potentially very large FCPA enforcement action. And that's what these companies uh, found themselves in going forward. So kudos to Scott. Thanks for uh, uh, taking a look at those cases. Really, from that perspective, uh, Kreller is a due diligence uh, service provider. So it's not surprising that they would consider that. But uh, as I said, once again, uh, always good to consider that. Always good to be reminded of it. And uh, Scott does a great job of that when he does post. And Scott, if you're listening to this, please post some more. Um, so once again, uh, the uh, if you are not from planet Earth, uh, we're going to introduce the next topic, which is, which is Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and compliance. And um, it's just getting worser and worser uh, as the minutes, hours, and days go past since the revelation that he has an accuser of uh, potential sexual uh, abuse and or harassment from his high school days. And so kind of without kind of going into the specifics of it, Jay, uh, Matt Kelly considered it from the compliance perspective in a radical compliance piece. Uh, Matt and I considered it in our podcast this week, Compliance in the Weeds. Uh, you are a father of twin girls. I'm the father of one girl. And I know this is something that uh, we as dads think about. So uh, what are kind of your thoughts around this from the compliance perspective? Yeah. So um, I guess last night on CNN, my favorite leftist news organization, um, they had five different Republican women from Florida, and they probably ranged in age from their uh, late 20s to early 30s to their early 60s. And unanimously, all five of them felt that um, Christine Blasey Ford was lying, that uh, if Judge Kavanaugh did have a misstep when he was 17, that he's grown up to be a great father and husband, and he should get a free free pass. And it's just um, crazy how everything is so polarized and polarized, rather. And if you take a look at this from the, you know, ethics and compliance perspective, it, it really um, just makes it uh, very difficult to really come to uh, a way that if you're not going to have uh, a fair fight and you have employees who have an issue and if they want to be a whistleblower, it just uh, really makes it uh, a very difficult proposition. Matt goes ahead, and in his um, blog, which um, I think got a lot of comments on the on the internet, he talks about you know issue number one being the investigation protocols, number two evaluating the redemption, and number three the ethics of the organization. And I think what is unfortunately uh, surely lacking is the uh, way that. Um, the U.S. Senate and the way Senator Grassley is trying to not only 
push this nomination through, but to actually blame it on uh, Senator Feinstein for actually honoring um, Ms. Blasey Ford's request to be anonymous and to be a whistleblower. So, you know, it, it really does set up um, a, a very big problem. What are your thoughts on it, Tom? So, Jay, I guess a couple of thoughts. One is that uh, I had originally hoped uh, and even the president said that they would honor the process, and that has completely fallen by the wayside. Uh, we now are having, as you pointed out, uh, not only personal attacks on the uh, accuser, whistleblower, or person who came forward, Ms. Ford, but we're also having uh, threats against her. She's had to go into hiding because of death threats against her and her family. And if we're ever going to move to a true speak-up culture, with transparency, there has to be really an honor around the process of investigations. I thought Matt had some pretty good thoughts that uh, both parties on each side of this could be telling the truth, that she remembers this happening and he has no recollection of this happening, um, unfortunately. Uh, So that there may actually be no one who is uh, lying, misstating facts or anything uh, along those lines. But what we have to have is a process by which uh, the credibility is tested, whether that is tested through an FBI investigation, whether that's tested through a polygraph examination, whether that's tested through an on-the-record uh, hearing. Um, the process is so politicized that we cannot get really to the facts of this uh, matter to see uh, what the true situation uh, might be going forward. And that if the administration uh, completely denigrates the process, then we may have a very big problem in the corporate world going forward because now we've completely separated the morals and the values of our government from the way people are either legally or expected to act in corporations. And as disenfranchised as people feel uh, leading to the Trump election um, from the dislocations around the uh, uh, repression, repression, recession of 2008, the financial crisis, if we now get to the situation where uh, the political process is completely divorced from uh, the moral underpinnings that we either have by law or uh, uh, convention in corporate world, I think it's it's not going to be uh, very positive at all. There has to be a process. The process should be followed. Uh, there should be some form of investigation. There should be some form of hearing. And you have to make it, uh, if not a completely safe place, you have to make it so that a person is not not only vilified for coming forward, but actually have their life threatened. So I think we're moving into some pretty dangerous territories. Certainly the Republicans are leading that charge. And um, um, let's have to see if any sanity comes forward. This comes to us from Sports Illustrated from Kaylin Jones. And um, Mark uh, Cuban, owner of the uh, Dallas Mavericks, uh, spoke with ESPN's Rachel Nichols. Uh, during Wednesday's episode of The Jump to discuss revelations of Dallas's toxic workplace 
And uh, basically, Cuban uh, said that, you know, he was not aware that there was a culture of sexual misconduct that thrived within his organization. And on Friday, the NBA announced that Cuban had agreed to donate $10 million to the org- to organizations that promote women in lead- leadership roles and combat domestic violence. So, um, you know, $10 million, I guess, could be a significant uh, number to some people. I'm not really sure if that's a significant number to uh, Mark Cuban, but um, he kind of feels that uh, that donation should take care of it. And um, we have a competing uh, point of view from Cynthia Marshall, who is uh, newly installed as the Maverick CEO. And uh, she joined Nichols and Cuban during the latter part of the Wednesday's program. And Marshall was hired in February after the investigation from uh, the piece that was started off by Sports Illustrated. And Marshall said what shocked her the most when she first joined the organization was its lack of responses from both human resources and those within leadership. She described it as a, quote, horrible, unquote, culture something that's been mandated by Cuban for her to fix. So she's uh, focusing on developing new ethics models, a new code of conduct, and a revanced workplace. Since Marshall's arrival, Dallas now features 45% of its key leadership's position are now occupied by women, a stark contrast from none that were in place prior to the investigation. And uh, Cuban's parting remarks was saying, well, uh, he doesn't have any excuses, but he's not trying to justify it either. So it seems um, uh, to fall into the category of uh, a little too late. But um, I don't know. Hopefully there's an upside there. So I watched the interview with Rachel Nichols, and it really did seem to me that Mark Cuban was very contrite, uh, contrasting that with Brett Kavanaugh, who has maintained this never happened. Uh, Cuban uh you're right. He, he offered no excuses. He said it happened. It happened on my watch. I wouldn't wa- I wasn't looking. I wasn't paying attention. It shouldn't have happened, but it did. And, uh, you know, he's um, he's on Shark Tank. He does a lot of television work. He's danced with the stars. I'd hate to say he's a great actor. I don't know if he was acting, but it sure seemed like he was contrite. The report issued was just horrific. Uh, the sexual harassment, the sexual abuse, uh, the, the things that went on in the office, the things that went on outside the office, you could not have found fi- found a more toxic culture for the abuse of and exploitation of women than the Dallas Mavericks front office. Uh, now, this is not the jocks, you know, this is not the athletes who all their life have gotten everything they wanted. This is the uh, administrative staff. This was the general manager and his team. This was a place where human resources was there uh, not to uh, police, not to put in policies and procedures, not to take sexual harassment complaints, but tell people either you can't complain about that or you'll be fired if you do. So um, it was just as toxic an environment as you can get. What the disconnect I have here, Jay, is that uh, I find it extraordinarily difficult to believe that someone who was owns this business did not know what was going on. That's really uh, where I fall because Mark Cuban, he is uh, a billionaire uh, 
made a billionaire twice. He has uh, created and sold two tech companies uh, for over a billion dollars. He is an extraordinarily smart guy. He has um, led the Mavericks to the NBA basketball championship. He has been as involved in the franchise down to the design of the locker room. Uh, he knew the nuts and bolts and the ins and outs. And I find it extraordinarily difficult that he could not or did not or was not involved, uh, not to say he was involved, but um, did not know of this. Uh, the fine, or I should not say the fine, uh, the donation he made in lieu of a fine, um, now we move to the question of how much should be the punishment. Should he be stripped of his franchise? Um, certainly the uh, uh, Los Angeles Clippers and their former owner, uh, he was stripped of his franchise uh, around racial remarks. Now, he did not cooperate with the NBA investigation, and Cuban did. Cuban was completely transparent. So uh, on the one hand, do you, do you want to say we want to encourage the behavior of people who step forward, uh, even if it's mul multiple years later, and they um, cooperate, they take their contrition, they take their uh, punishment, or they make, in Cuban's case, make their donation, or uh, do you want to get rid of people? Is that uh, the greater incentive? Uh, I, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, you are correct that $10 million is about the same as $10 to you and me, uh, $10 million to Cuban. Uh, he is extraordinarily wealthy, and um, between he and the, I think the Mavericks are va uh, valued well over $2 billion dollars. Uh, so to say this is a significant financial expense to him uh, belies the, I think, facts on the ground. So um, we've had no kind of government uh, response, SEC or other. It's a private corporation, so there's no stock, no shareholders to sue. And I don't know if this will be uh, enough. I cannot believe he didn't have to have uh, some sort of suspension. Uh, apparently that this is it. Uh, that there will be no fine or other, or other discipline, I should say, from the NBA. So um, <clears throat> uh, that's kind of where we were, where we are. Um, the uh, former general manager has left in disgrace, and uh, hopefully we won't be seeing him again. Uh, but uh, And I hope that the, they can turn the culture around. Yep. So there's uh, one article we, we jumped over. And so just to go back, except we have a – uh, a little thing about some Russian money laundering, but this time it's coming up from uh, Denmark. So I've uh, got an article here from Patricia Kausman and Drew Hinshaw from the Wall Street Journal. What are they talking about? So, you, you know, Jay, if I told you the story, you would have just looked at me and said, Tom, you can't write that story. I know it's fiction, but no one would believe it. Well, uh, this was not fiction. This was a bank that had a branch in Estonia that ran over 2.6 billion. Let me repeat that: 206 billion dollars uh, through it on well, suspicious transactions. 99% uh, of all transactions through the branch were suspicious. Uh, this was 10% of the bank's profits for over seven years. But here's where we get to the great part, Jay. Uh, after this story broke publicly, uh, they the bank commissioned uh, their uh, white uh, shoe law firm to come in and do an investigation. And the law firm issued a report that they said was neither uh, impartial uh, nor independent. 
So we have a, a complete whitewash report bought and paid for by the bank for the law firm that exonerated senior management and the board of directors. Gosh, I wonder how that happened. Uh, mm, maybe we should uh, send a letter to dear Mr. Monitors and ask an opinion on that uh, about the independent integrity of a third party independent investigation. It's just beyond belief that a law firm would do that. I don't know what the rules are around professionalism in Denmark, but uh, I think in the United States, these guys would be subject to be being disbarred. At any rate, uh, even though they did um, conclude that no one did anything wrong, in spite of the fact that there was not only actual knowledge uh, <clears throat> of the money laundering that was going on, but there was cover-ups by members of the boards of direct, or at least senior management, I don't know about the board level, um, they did point out a lot of really bad facts. And those bad facts were exactly that, that senior management did this. Now, the person who was the uh, uh, bank unit president over international operations, including Estonia, he did such a great job with this branch that he got promoted to CEO. Gee, I wonder how that happened. Um, so this um, is a really huge case. It's by far the biggest money laundering case. Two oh six billion. Can't say that enough. Um, the the bank, uh, probably channeling their inner Mark Cuban, uh, made a donation <laughs> of what they alleged to be the profits that they garnered. They claim they only got. 200 million in profits, uh, but they made a donation to, wait for it, an anti-money laundering charity uh, to help fight uh, money laundering. So when you lay over this, uh, kind of the more of the uh, fact or fiction part, apparently the banking regulators in Denmark are not able to find banks who violate the law. They can speak to them quite sternly. And uh, I don't know if, if the phrase, just wait till your father gets home, resonates with you, Jay. Uh, but that was a pretty stern statement from my mother. Um, <laughs> and, uh, my, you know, to be sternly told not to do something, that, you know, that, that really has an effect, especially on a teenage boy. So um, uh, you, have, you have girls, so it's a completely different dynamic. I'm sure that be, you speak Because M&M never do anything wrong. They're just little princesses. There you go. They're little princesses. So, um, yes, exactly. That's, that, my daughter was the same way. So I completely get it. Um, and, um, but this is just – this whole story is beyond belief. But um, I think the U.S. government is going to take a very dim view of this. wouldn't surprise me if the – uh, Treasury and Department of Justice just sanction them, uh, multi-billion dollars. Uh, you never want to put a national bank out of out of uh, business, uh, but there has to be some significant uh, sanctions here. Uh, how bad was it, Jay? The Russian Central Bank notified the Dankst Bank that there was potential suspicious activities. Get, uh, yeah, think about that for a minute. The Russians <laughs> called up and said, hey, we think you may have a money laundering problem. So it uh, doesn't really get much better than that. If I told you that story, you would have probably said, Tom, you can't even write that as fiction. It wouldn't qualify. It's too weird. So uh, interesting story. All right. So now um, we're going to get back on the uh, corruption train. And there is a reason why Houston always remains to be part of the uh, global center of FCPA action because of the energy industry. And we have an article from Mara Limo Stein about UK corruption trial to hear from big oil. Do you want to talk about the uh, Houston connection and what's happening here? Sure. So um, the uh, North Sea is still one of the top uh, production locations in the world. And the serious fraud office has brought a corruption case against four individuals 
uh, who were charged with paying bribes to get business in the North Sea. This is not an FCPA case. This is a, a UK Bribery Act case. It's not even a Bribery Act. It's prior to the Bribery Act going into uh, effect. Um, but we've got a Houston connection because the um, uh, company ConocoPhillips is involved in supplying witnesses. The company that uh, paid the bribes, F.H. Bertling, a German company, uh, it is its four former employees who stand trial for this. So uh, usually we don't see uh, companies, um, American companies, uh, either in the witness, either in the dock or in the witness stand around uh, bribery and corruption, but we, we're going to see that here. And it's going to be interesting to see um, what uh, the testimony of the ConocoPhillips representative is going forward. Thanks, Tom. Um, next up, we're going to take a look at um, a new study that uh, KPMG released. And um, it's uh, basically taking a look at how companies are using automation in their compliance activities or more appropriately how they are not. And uh, according to uh, a survey of more than 206 U.S. chief information officers and chief compliance officers, um, they are not yet automating their compliance activities according to this report. Uh, and while 90% of them plan to increase funding for automation in the years, as right now, just 20%, one in five have a well-defined strategy. And, um, you know, basically their obstacles to automation in this report are weak data that they pointed to, 67% pointed to the unavailability of data to be used as leading factors. 36% uh, of the CIOs and CCOs said that leadership needs to be better engaged. And finally, 32% said that there's a skills and resource gap. Uh, basically, they tend to focus more on certain regulatory obligations like uh, product safety, industry-specific regulations, cyber, privacy, fraud, and consumer protection. So it seems like right now the folks are um, really staying safe and doing things uh, that they can kind of comfortably do, but they're really not taking advantage of the uh, AI potential that we take a look at, that we've looked at in the past. So, um, you know, basically... Uh, there are five top areas that are cited for pursuing op automation. Uh, it can lead to better risk management, enhance the quality of your ethics and compliance program, have a better experience for your customers, better support new products and services, and remove friction from compliance processes and address current pain points. So uh, it's a good article, uh, and we've linked to the study in our show notes. And next up, um, Tom, Professor Matthew Stevenson is still scratching his head about U.S. versus Hot v. Hoskins, and he's brought in a couple more sites, too. What's the professor thinking about now? Well, actually, he changed his focus just a little bit, and it's the way he explained it, Jay. Hoskins got him thinking about a case that uh, many of us thought was settled law, certainly around the FCPA, and that case was U.S. versus Castle. And U.S. versus Castle stood for the proposition that the receiver of the bribe, 
the foreign government official could not be uh, brought to justice under the FCPA. That it's a supply side statute. The payor is the primary party or the, the only party who could be held liable uh, under statute and the payee could not be. Now, there are other laws that you could uh, prosecute a payee under that we've seen money laundering or, or perhaps others. Nevertheless, um, Castle seemed to be pretty well settled law. Well, Professor Stevenson actually went back and took a look at Castle. It's a 1991 case, and he found that the uh, legal reasoning uh, was suspect, and or at least to him it was suspect, and that perhaps <coughs> Castle was wrongly considered or wrongly decided, uh, rather, and that uh, perhaps uh, that kind of uh, prosecution can be brought. Now, it leaves open the question of whether it should be brought, but he said that even if if Castle, uh, it's not law for the United States, although it's law in the um, jurisdiction where the uh, Court of Appeals ruled, and the uh, company, or rather, the Department of Justice could actually move forward and begin to prosecute the um, receivers of bribes. This would certainly open up a uh, potential avenue that has not been explored. The case came out of the Fifth Circuit, so that would include Houston, Houston, Louisiana, and Mississippi, I think, is the Fifth Circuit now. Um, so uh, it was a very interesting article, and it gives uh, a, a pretty um, a nuanced roadmap for the Department of Justice to follow if they wanted to pursue this. Uh, now, certainly uh, anyone brought to justice under the, this uh, interpretation, I'm sure their defense counsel would raise the Castle case as a defense, and perhaps we would get some other rulings um, from other circuits, and that could lead to some Supreme Court con- consideration of it. But it certainly opens up something uh, that the Department of Justice has not used, um, and the conspiracy part of the statute could bring some uh, new FCPA action. So uh, very interesting, very provocative. Uh, as always, uh, Professor Stevenson, well thought out, well written piece. All right. And to uh, close things up, once more from our friends at the Wall Street Journal, uh, Sam Rubenfeld is taking a look at the SEC's proposal to limit big whistleblower awards. And it seems to be drawing criticism from many different camps. And uh, a name that most of us probably associate with the um, Bernie Madoff trial is Harry Markopoulos, and he basically said that capping awards would all but ensure that the elephant never walks through the SEC's doors, only rabbits and the occasional zebra. Uh, Imagine what could happen if a direct report to the executive suite became a whistleblower, Mr. Markopoulos wrote. This program should always aim high, not lower average. That's how it was designed and how it should be remain. Uh, You know, whistleblowers take a big risk. They put their lives on hold. Uh, As we talked about earlier in this podcast, sometimes they even face death threats. So it would seem that there's uh, more of an incentive to get whistleblowers to come through with the awards being uncapped. And uh, this seems to be a step in the wrong direction. Tom, thoughts? Uh, Yeah, I agree. It's really hard to see what this benefits uh, at all. And uh, Harry Markopoulos, I think, uh, from his position in the Madoff case, really has a lot of weight. But um, Sam's piece really points out that really no one has come out positive or forward for this um, cutback in 
whistleblower award. So it's going to be interesting to see if the SEC, in the face of really no positive critiques uh, on the commentary uh, about the proposed changes, goes forward to do it, and then what that might mean for the whistleblower program going forward. All right, so that's the news of the week. Um, I'd like to give a shout-out to uh, Cleveland, Ohio, because Cleveland rocks. And the Brownies last night, I think, won for the first time since the fall of 2016. So kudos to them. And kudos to the Red Sox, who have now clinched. And are, they are looking forward to uh, seeing the Houston Astros in October. Bring it on, Tom. Bring it on. So um, after uh, celebrating the victory in the big house, I believe you are off to Boston. What's happening next Tuesday and Wednesday? So next Tuesday and Wednesday, I have a master class. I still have a couple of seats left if you're interested. It's going to be held at the offices of affiliated monitors in Boston. Uh, my two-day master class on uh, operationalizing a best practices compliance program uh, I think it's one of the top uh, training sessions around, so um, we link to it in the show notes. Uh, also, upcoming is the Converge 2018 conference put on by Conversant in Denver uh, from uh, October 8th through 11th. Uh, Eric, your colleague Eric Feldman is speaking there. I'm speaking there. Listeners of this podcast get a discount of 50% off the registration price. I've got information on the agenda and uh, link to the uh, discount. Uh, code for the registration and the uh, I had a really interesting podcast series this week Jay with Rebecca Turco and Paul Johns from SAI Global on some very innovation innovative ideas around compliance learning and um, it is uh, both from a technological perspective and from the content perspective they've moved to something called adaptive learning uh, which (coughs) really (coughs) tailors your learning to the uh, student in a way that is uh, very innovative uh, going forward. So uh, check it out, and I think uh, you will uh, enjoy that. So um, you want to take us home from Century City? Yeah, from uh, Century City to Ann Arbor, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in the FCPA, episode 121 for the week ending September 14th, the Go Blue edition. So uh, thanks for listening. Uh, We wish you a great weekend of uh, football, fall, and family, and we'll talk to you next week. Thanks. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. I hope you'll join us again next week where Jay and I explore the week's top ethics and compliance stories. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.